Again, we're talking about Jerusalem meets Rome and finds Babylon. Uh, this is a study in church purity. Uh, before I go any further, I'm just going to make this announcement now. I'll make it again later. Um, back in February or so, we were talking to people about getting things cleaned up and straightened up and dusted and all carried with. And I, I really uh, appreciate the fact that everybody did get things done. I, I'm really impressed with the, with the way things are looking. There's trim up work that's been done. Chandelier all nice and cleaned up. The, the Ark Park is coming along real well. There's all kinds of things in here that got dusted and washed. I just, I just really appreciate it all. So I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who uh, contributed whatever they did, you know, because it was, um, I, I never knew exactly what anybody was doing. I just saw there were different people here showing up to pick this up, pick that up, get some uh, trash moved around and stuff. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate it very, very much. Tonight, we would like to deal with corruption. <laughs> Uh, that sounded silly, but that the title of what we're going to do is dealing with corruption. I don't mean I'm going to deal with corruption tonight. So uh, anyway, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you so much for the way that you do watch over us, the way you meet our daily needs. Father, thank you for air to breathe and lungs to breathe it with. I guess as I watch my brothers leave this world, I'm grateful for the life that we get to have. I'm grateful, Father, that we know each other. I'm grateful that you gave us to each other. Thank you for friendship. Thank you for brotherhood. Thank you for the things, the Lord Jesus Christ in particular, that's brought us all together. We are from a lot of different places, Father. We did come here uh, to be together in this particular assembly and not knowing each other and knowing it is by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. So we want to thank you for that tonight. I do lift up Gene and his family, Frank and his family, as they go through this dying experience. And I ask, Father, in Jesus' name, you'll grant them a good walk with you. I want to thank you for what you'll do there. I pray that the families will be comforted and that they'll meet uh, a good grace and good peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, thank you for what you're going to do as you've given us a good story to tell to the nations. Teach us how to do it well in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to deal with at least two things tonight. I'm going to deal with doctrinal disputes. And Lord willing, we're going to deal with um, disputes over structure and church polity. Those are things that we're going to be problems, and they're going to be problems because you have people. Anytime you have people, you're going to have problems with structure and polity and that sort of thing. And with people, you're also going to have several different perspectives on things. Um, uh, I've, I've said things before, and I think I've been clear about what I said, but what someone heard of what I said was not the same as what I thought I said. And so when you have a group of people all it takes is five of those who might heard, hear something different than what you thought you said that can change what the, what the message was that morning or that evening or that conversation you got to have with people. So those things can change easily. How do you suppose that you could maintain the message of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years and get it to be the same message 2,000 years later? That, that's a pretty phenomenal work. You understand where I'm coming from? That's, that's a pretty big deal that you can have 
a message remain the same for all that way, especially when it's got to go through so many different languages, so many different ethnic groups, so many different cultures who have different backgrounds to it. It's got to go through all of that. That's the filter through which it's all got to run. How do you come out on the other end with the same message? So that's kind of what we want to deal with. Um, When we've been talking about this, we say Jerusalem because that's where the gospel started. And it started with the Jewish people. So the gospel being in Jewish people has a Jewish setting. But it's not going to remain in a Jewish setting because Jesus had told them, get out into all the world. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. So now it's got to go from that Jewish setting into what I'm calling a Rome setting, which was the city-states, the nations. It's got to go into there. And they're going to encounter new cultural problems there. They're going to encounter new idolatries there. They're going to encounter new religions, new philosophies, all kinds of stuff that's new. Will that message keep its integrity as it goes into those groups? Or will it get altered by those groups? Uh, Can I pull in some of the really neat things from Zeus and add those to the gospel too so it becomes now more of a universal gospel? Eh, Not supposed to. The message is coming from Jesus and it's supposed to retain its integrity all the way through. So how do you get that done? So let's, let's look over the first in our outline here, doctrinal disputes. Uh, how do you keep the preservation of truth? Well, as we've attempted to show in previous lessons, understanding and formulating the information received by the apostles from Jesus was a major undertaking. How would they remember everything he had said and done? To our knowledge, no one was taking notes during that time. Now, that means that they're going to have to orally remember what Jesus said. They're going to commit it to writing, but they're going to have to remember what he said first before they commit it to writing. And that's caused some critics to say, see, they, they wrote down what they wanted to write down. We don't know whether Jesus actually said that or he didn't. They just wrote down what they wanted to write down, and they said, this is what Jesus said. Well, they used then a little bit later prophet to prove that's what happened. Muhammad, you remember, was not a literate man. He didn't read or write. But after he was dead and gone, his disciples tried to remember all the things that he said. So the Quran is what they remember about what he said. Are you following what I'm saying? It's because he didn't write anything down. No one wrote anything down. They were waiting till later. So they said, you see, that's the way the Quran came to be. So that's got to be the way that the New Testament came to be. No, no, that doesn't have to be the way it's going to be. But um, so let's, let's go to number one. On the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he had promised the disciples, who are now called apostles, that he would send them the Holy Spirit to teach them, to make them witnesses but also to bring back to them the minds the things which Jesus said and did. Now, that's what John tells us that Jesus said the very night that he was betrayed, the very night they had the Lord's table together. He's already telling them, I'm going to give you guys my Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, who has been the power through which I have spoken, is now going to speak through you. You're going to remember the things which I've said, and you're going to be saying those to people. Don't even take thought for what you're going to have to say because the Holy Spirit's going to teach you what to say at that time. 
So one of the ways it was preserved is by the Holy Spirit's power. Number two in our outline, they had the written record of the Tanakh from which Jesus had taught them from the law, the prophets, and the writings how to see the things written about them. Uh, Yeah, well, yeah. They would refer to them and quote them in their writings and speaking opportunities. Turn with me to Luke 24 just for a minute, will you? Luke 24. Here, Jesus is speaking, I believe it's to the two disciples at Emmaus. It may be to all the disciples, but Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, and let's pick up with um, um, let's pick up with verse 19. Um, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and in sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered, delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking back to these two disciples, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now watch what verse 27 says. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You follow that? So that's, that is one of the things they didn't lay claim that they were the ones who discovered these truths. They are telling us Jesus is the one who taught us these things. We didn't see him before. We hadn't noticed him before, but Jesus is now starting all the way back with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's working his way all the way through those scriptures and showing here's where Jesus is. Here's where I was supposed to be to suffer. Here was where I was supposed to suffer. Here is what the prophet said about me being raised in from the dead. Here's what this, and all these things he's telling them now. So Jesus is personally teaching them how the Tanakh, and that's, that's a word just simply, that's the word for our old, what we call the Old Testament. That's the, the, the Hebrew understanding of what the Old Testament is. Obviously, Hebrews don't call it the Old Testament. The Jewish people don't call it the Old Testament because they don't see the New Testament as here yet. So it's just the Tanakh then. Okay? So everything that was in the Tanakh, Jesus had taught them what it said. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus' personal teaching about what the Tanakh had to say, so you could always go back to the Tanakh and bring the, the message of the prophets and the, the, the law and the writings, you could bring them all forward and say, here's what they said about the Messiah. Remember, that's how Paul would go into synagogues. He'd take the Tanakh with him or use the Tanakh in the synagogue, read it to him and say, this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. This one here is talking about Jesus. This one's talking about Jesus, all right? So uh, he had all those things. Then number three, they, of course, had the remarkable three years with him before his death in which they witnessed many miraculous things that only God can do. 
They heard him speak with divine authority. <coughs> they had been privately taught the meanings of things that others did not get. Those things became a part of their lives, indelibly etched into their memories. Aided by the Holy Spirit, it would be a good recall. So they know they had the Holy Spirit that was going to help them recall those things. They simply remembered what Jesus had taught them. You remember when we were up on that mountainside and Jesus said, sit down here, I've got something to tell you. And he told us all those things. Remember the day in which he fed all those people? That was one big day. Oh, how about the, how about the demonic guy? Remember when we went across the sea and that demonic guy that lived in the tombs? Remember that guy? Well, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And you remember what he said and all the... So, they're remembering all those things. They're coming back to them. And they're telling those stories to all the people. Uh, take, uh, take, for instance, um, turn just for a minute, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, after all those people had trusted Jesus Christ, that's 3,000 of them, um, had trusted Jesus on the same day, verse 41 tells us, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So let's get the picture here. The there's, everybody is saying these guys were the ones closest to Jesus, so they started hanging around with those guys and said, tell us the stories of Jesus. So they're telling them all the things that they remember Jesus doing. Those things are being remembered by other people and being told by other people. I guess you could say now they've got a story to tell to the nations. That's just as we sung about earlier. So they're all going to remember those things, and they're going to be teaching those things to each other. Number four in our outline, added to those days were the 40 days after his resurrection when they were taught by him personally even more in depth than they had received before. Now, let's, let's get this picture. After Jesus is resurrected, he came in in the, uh, the book of John tells us that he breathed on them said, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They were receiving that very spirit that he told them, this is going to be the spirit of recall, it's going to be the spirit of witness, it's going to be the spirit of my testimony, this is going to help you know the things that are in the Scriptures. So he's giving them his Holy Spirit. Then for the next 40 days, those men now who are seeing a resurrected Jesus, not the one prior to the crucifixion, they're seeing the resurrected Jesus, which is even more authoritative than the other one had been. And before, they had seen him as a prophet, as a good man, but now they've seen him resurrected. And they've got the aid of the Holy Spirit, so everything he's teaching them, they are paying close attention to. They're, they're learning all those things. So, as we said in number five, added those days were the 40 days after his resurrection when they were taught by him. Because they had the Holy Spirit, they could see now that their imaginations of the way things should work out were small and insufficient after they learned from him the truth. So here they're thinking of what the kingdom's going to be, that they're going to be one at the right hand, one at the left hand, and they're all going to be lieutenants in this great kingdom and stuff. And now they're realizing, man, that was a tiny picture. We were not looking at the whole picture at all. We were not seeing how big this whole gospel thing really is. And they're learning it that night, or those 40 days when Jesus is teaching you. 
Number five in our outline. Jesus had promised to be with them so that so they had his ongoing presence to guide them into what was true. Remember what Jesus had said to them, uh, that I, I am going to be with you, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. They were counting on the fact that Jesus was with them. God's presence was with them to aid them in the preservation of truth and the accuracy of remembrance. Number six, the promised Holy Spirit had come, and now that supernatural superintendence was operating in them, showing them with whom to speak, what to say, and when to speak it. He was giving them boldness with his effective memory. All right? So let's just turn for a moment. Let's go to Acts chapter uh, uh, 4. Acts chapter 4. And we can do the same thing with chapter 6 and and so on and so forth, but let's just kind of... uh, Pick this up. In chapter 4, uh, uh, Peter and John are having the opportunity to uh, preach again, uh, but they get arrested. But uh, verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number came to be about 5,000. So now add another 2,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders, verse 5 of chapter 4, and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were highly priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name had you done these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, now watch how important that is, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that was, has been given among men by which he must be saved. Now look at verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Everybody follow where I'm at? So now the Holy Spirit has given them boldness and confidence and that they are recognizing that these guys had been with Jesus. That's where they're getting their authority to speak. They had been with Jesus. Ever see where I'm at? That's how they're going to keep this truth preserved. That's how the message is going to stay the same because we're, we're now removed from the resurrection. We're removed from the ascension. We're starting to get into days and, and weeks and months and then years away from all of that, and the message is still the same. All right, number seven, Jesus had already taught them the principle of togetherness, especially going two by two to reinforce what they spoke and did. They would have helped each other with their differing perspectives and details about what Jesus had said and done. When we, uh, uh, when we had uh, uh, evangelism explosion here, when we went out, we'd go out two by two. And it was helpful because we, we had a script that we were following. You know, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? Well, we would take two of us. We want to make sure there was always two. Many times there were three, but we'd go out two by two. 
so that if anybody forgot a little detail along the way, the other one could supply it. And if you were, if you went to that door, I, I can think of a number of times when uh, earlier I'd go to a door and I'd knock on that door and I'd say, please don't answer this, please don't answer this, please don't answer this, please don't, and they'd answer it. And I'd think, oh, no, prayer, unanswered. That's what you, you must be a sinner. But anyway, you, you'd walk through there, and once you walk through the door, boldness came to you. You understand what I'm saying? The boldness came to you, and you started having a good conversation. Well, that's what's going on with them. Um, they're having two by two. They're going two by two, and sometimes they're being it together. A lot of times when they'd sit around the upper room having prayer together, they'd remember some of the things that Jesus said, and they'd help each other put the whole story back together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You forgot the detail. That was the little boy that brought. Oh, yeah. The little boy. I remember that now. That's who it was. It was a little boy. It wasn't an old man. It was a little boy. Yeah, there we go. All right. Verse 8. Everywhere they went, they selected disciples like Jesus had done with them. So if they're going to go uh, to Berea and they're going to preach the gospel in Berea, they're going to look for the ones who are responding positively to that gospel. And the ones that are responding positively are the ones they're going to assume the Holy Spirit must be working with that person. Since the Holy Spirit's working with that person, I'm going to choose that person to follow me around. And if that person is interested and hungry, they're going to ask questions. I'm going to teach them. So that's what they were continuing to do. They would teach faithful men the things they had been taught, hoping that those faithful men would teach to other faithful men the things they'd been taught. Let's see if we can write that down there. They, they then taught these disciples the truth over and again until they could accurately teach what they had been taught. With it, there was true reliance upon the Holy Spirit as the true teacher and developer of gifted men to lead. So they knew we're not the ones developing these disciples. This is the Holy Spirit that's developing disciples. I don't want disciples who follow me. I want disciples who follow the Holy Spirit, who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow where we're coming from? All right. So they were counting on the Holy Spirit to do that. With it, there was true reliance upon the Holy Spirit as the true teacher and developer of gifted men. This is just good discipleship. These faithful men then became faithful teachers who would protect the local assemblies of believers like sheepdogs, keeping the wolves and other predators out of the church and feeding the sheep good truth. So they just created faithful men by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving them the Tanakh, giving them the teachings of Jesus, giving them the things that Jesus said, and they're now those men are now teaching other men to do the same thing, also relying on the Holy Spirit. Any, any questions about anything so far? All right, number nine. By the time they are recording their memories and lessons learned in writing, those thoughts are pretty firmly established. The letters and documents were exchanged with others around the Roman Empire and in other regions as well. Those documents are close enough in textual agreement that the textual problems or variations seldom, if ever, affect any significant doctrinal issue. Now, just, just imagine, if you would, in this room. Each one of you have a piece of uh, parchment with you, and you have a pen with you, and I'm going to start reading this letter. This is a letter that was written by Peter to the church, and this is such an important document that I'm going to read it, 
and you're going to write it down. Everybody with me? So we're all writing down. And any place that you think, whoa, whoa, wait, I didn't understand that. What, what word did you say there? And you give that word, then I write that word down there and make sure I got my spelling correct. Everybody see where I'm at? Now, after we get done, how many copies? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got eight copies of this that have just been made tonight. We're going to pass those eight copies, which should be looking just like this one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take mine and I'm going to compare all of yours to it. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, paragraph B there. You got, you got a new word there. I don't know what that word is. Oh, I see what it is. It's a problem with the parchment. The parchment took in more ink than it needed to take in right there. Must be a scratch in the parchment someplace. So it took in more ink and it made it look like an F instead of a T. I see. Okay, I got you there. Now they're going to correct that. That's going to be what's known as a textual variant. You understand what I'm saying? It's going to be different. You're looking at this one and you're looking at the copy over here that had that scratch in it. It's going to look different, right? So you could say, one of these is not correct. Well, yeah, but it's kind of obvious what the not correct is. It's kind of obvious which one of them is the not correct one, right? So when you hear people saying, oh, there's so many variants in the, in the texts, that there are variants in the texts. But some of them are explained by the very thing I just explained to you, the scratch that's in the parchment. Some of them are explained by... Um, since all of the words had to be written in capital letters with no spacing, suppose I spell this word for you and you tell me what word this is. Ready? N-O-W-H-E-R-E. What is that word? Now remember, these are all capital letters and I put no spacing in it. It's, it's what? It's nowhere or now here. Oh, which is it? Hmm. So now I have to make a decision on what it is, right? So I'm reading along here. I'm saying, you know, uh, God is nowhere. No, God is. Oh, God is now here. So that would mean Emmanuel, right? So I could say God is now here. That's a textual variant. But it's not a textual variant in the text. It's a textual variant in my reading of the text. Is that, is that making sense? So you're, you're going to have them where they're different just because we're copying them different. And you may hear a word if I said there. How are you going to spell there? T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R, or T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. Which one are you going to spell? You see, it's got to be in context, doesn't it? So you're, you're going to have that context. Well, anyway, I, I, I hope you get the idea of what we're saying. They are passing their thoughts along. They're passing their words along. They're passing their teachings along that they have been repeating over and over and over again. Now they're going to commit them in writing. That's going to be a, a critical new thing for them, okay? As a matter of fact, from that time on, 
all of us in the Western world are going to count on written documents to be a verification of truth. We're not going to keep listening to oral stories over and over again. You understand what I'm saying? That's, that's going to create a problem as we take our written texts into oral cultures. Because as we take our written texts, we say, here's the title to your property. And it describes your property. It's over by the third oak tree on the left that goes all the way to the stump where the big rock is. That moves all the way up here, and that's all written here in this document, right? Where you had been saying, it's by that tree over there that's over by that tree where the stump is on that by where the rock is, and it's over here by that. That's where my land is, okay? We're saying, no, I don't go by that anymore. It's got to be this description here. Does this description describe your property? Well, yeah, I, I, I guess, okay? Sign here. Sign, I don't write. Okay, make an X. So that's an X, and somebody witnesses this is what so-and-so wrote. Okay? We count on written documents. Oral cultures count on repeating orally the things that are said. Everybody see where I'm coming from? So it's going to create a problem, as you can see, a little bit later down the road. But for now, they're getting past just oral telling, and they're writing it all down. Now you're starting to get the New Testament. Now you're starting to get Gospels written. They're not the only ones going to write Gospels. There are other people who are going to write Gospels too. So Thomas is going to write a Gospel. Barnabas is going to write a Gospel. Or at least somebody who claims to be Thomas and somebody who claims to be Barnabas. Okay? Now, what they're going to do... They're going to look over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which they know were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are called authorized gospels. And then they're going to pick up this one that lays claim to being the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, So I'm reading here the Gospel of Thomas. And when Jesus was eight years old, the other kids made fun of him because he was always so good. And they would throw rocks at him. Uh, driving him from the neighborhood. But they were always amazed when, when they threw those rocks at him, he made the rocks turn into doves and fly away. Oh, wow. Jesus did that as a kid. So you're going to look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, which time did Jesus turn rocks into doves? None of them? None of the guys said that? Hmm. I don't know. Gospel of Thomas had said earlier that once when Jesus was nursing at his mother, he looked back up at her and said, I'm the son of God, you know. Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It, no. So I'm starting to look at Gospel of Thomas now, and I'm saying, maybe not. Maybe this doesn't have any validity to it, so I'm going to set it aside. I'm not going to destroy it because it's still literature. Somebody wrote this literature. And now, 20 centuries later, somebody's going to come along and pick up this ancient old document. And it apparently is the Gospel of Thomas. So now I'm going to read it along and say, wow, 
This is really, this is the secret hidden documents about the life of Jesus. Wow, this is great. It's not. It was already considered invalid years and years ago. Everybody follow where I'm at? All right. Maybe that's a little facetious. But uh, um, number 10, their writings are going to be copied and recopied with a relatively wide distribution. Even with that, the copies would compare with each other or have remarkably few variations by comparison with other copies of works of antiquity. They are treasured copies and are preserved very well. Okay? Uh, sometimes it was, it's a, a copy is no more than a page of the Gospel of Mark. And it's not, it's not the full chapter or anything else. Sometimes it may be the last five chapters of Luke. Uh, doesn't have the fir- earlier chapters to it. That may be all that you find. But at least you can compare those last five chapters with another one over here that you've got the full uh, book for. All right. Anyway, the, uh, letter B in our outline. What about after the apostles were all removed from the scene? The people whom they have faithfully taught preserve that truth within the church bodies of believers through continued discipleship and church structure. Uh, Al was talking earlier, discipleship, that's not just sitting and listening to a message. When they did discipleship, guys, they adopted somebody into their family. Uh, that means that if um, uh, Mike wants to be uh, discipled by me, Mike just now trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and I want to be discipled, I'm actually going to move Mike into my house so he, walk, he works with me. I'm going to hire him in my company, whatever it is, so he's working with me so that all day long we're going through the teachings of Jesus and I'm showing him how those teachings work. You see where we're coming from? That was discipleship. With women, it was going to be older women are going to take those younger women into their homes, say, this is how you cook a meal, this is how you do this, this is how you uh, understand the book of John, this is how you understand the stories of the Old Testament. So they're going to teach those young ladies then all about the books of the Bible, all about the gospel, how to teach other people, how to teach your children, all of those things are going to go on. So it was discipleship. That's what was going on always in the churches. Um, it, a little bit later, we were going to change some of that, and it became more of a, a listener sport than a, a participation. All right. Number two. Following the guidance given them by the apostles, such as Peter, Jude, John, Paul, and others whose writings have been preserved, they use spiritual and informational tests to determine whether the information being given by certain teachers rang true to the Word of God. For example, think of the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, my Bible's still open to Acts. If yours is, you can kind of turn over to Acts chapter 17. We'll look at verse 11 for just a moment. Okay. My pages are sticking together. Um, now, Acts 17, 11 says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So there were some tests that you put to it. Just because somebody was giving you a story didn't mean it was the truth. So what you did, you opened up the Scriptures, you searched and you said, is that what this guy just said? Does it match this? If it doesn't, then this guy's not worth listening to. You follow where we're at? 
So that's what you're going to use. Uh, so you had also Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. Acts 20, 28 to 31. Here's what it says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among the, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. All right. So you were supposed to test teachers. You listen to what those teachers had to say, carefully to what those teachers had to say, and when they were not saying the truth, you rejected them as not a good teacher. That's uh, what had happened in Revelation uh, chapter 2, and I don't think it was verse 1. I think it's probably verse 2. So it's Revelation 2, 2, I think, rather than Revelation 2, 1. So they put spiritual tests on things. Uh, John said, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God or not. For every spirit that testifies that Jesus Christ is Lord is from God. Every spirit that does not testify Jesus Christ is from God Almighty is not of God. Don't listen to them. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, hey, put everything to the test. Abstain from that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. All right. So Jude said, contend earnestly for the faith. Don't just believe everything you hear. Number three, those who copied manuscripts or writings sent or delivered by the apostles were carefully copied. There was variation sometimes from one geographical region to the next, but most of the variations are explainable and very few affect doctrinal integrity. Have you ever picked up somebody's letter or note or card that they sent to you and you're reading along and it's in cursive? Sometimes like the kids at school will say, oh no, this is in cursive. I'm going to have to read cursive now. Oh. And what they're dreading is not all of us make all of our letters perfectly. You ever, you ever run across that? That when somebody wrote you a note in cursive on that card, that, that card you received from them, you're, uh, and then you're kind of guessing at what it might be because Every other word that you came up with doesn't make sense in the sentence that way. Well, imagine that's what is going to happen sometimes. Not everybody writes with the best Greek letters. Not everybody writes with the best Hebrew letters they can use. And sometimes you get confused about one letter to another. Can that make a difference in the word? Yes, it can. I was reading along and... uh, uh, I think it was First Corinthians. And I was reading in uh, in a Greek text, and as I was reading it, it said, uh, "And though I give my body, uh, it's it's the place where it says, I, though I give my body to be burned, is the way it's translated in English.' But that's not the word I saw. Though I give my body to be uh, thrown away, or some something along those lines, I thought, thrown away. Why? Then I noticed there's a little superscript to it. So I go down to the bottom of the page, I'll look, there's a footnote with that little superscript that says, some translations or some texts read, and there was one letter difference. And that one letter made a difference in whether it was thrown away or burned. They were close, 
But one meant one thing, one meant another. That's one letter making that kind of difference. How hard would that be to do that if you were writing a, a, any kind of a document? If you're writing in cursive, can you see how that could happen? All right. Then, as Pastor Al has been showing us, regional church councils were called to settle doctrinal disputes. These councils issued judgments, sometimes as creeds, that churches today still abide with. Like I said, you, you can pick up your hymnal here, and the Apostles' Creed is in there, the Nicene Creed is in there. Those are still being abided by in what's known as creedal churches. Those churches say, this is, what, this is our statement of faith. This is what we, we believe. Number five, but even that did not stop false teachers uh, from teaching doctrines contrary to the clear teaching of Christ and the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles laid the foundation. That, that is the greatest test of all. Does it match that which has been laid down by Christ and the apostles? If it's speculation, call it speculation. Don't call it the Word of God. If it doesn't match what the Scriptures say, then their rule was, if it doesn't match what the Scriptures say, then we don't, nece- we don't necessarily want to use it. All right. Now, the next were disputes over structure and church polity. All right. By polity, we mean the politics or the policies of a church. How does it work? Well, from the reading of Scripture, the apostles, especially Paul, created a pretty simple, reliable, and workable church government, likely based on what the experience of the synagogue had been. So here's what the structure was. Elders to serve the congregation with reliable truth in a plurality of leadership. They weren't looking for just one guy to be the leader there. They were looking for elders, plural. Why? Plurality as Proverbs says, there is wisdom found in the counsel of many. So you want to listen to what everybody's perspective is. It's like I've, I've held up before uh, a hymnal, and I've just, I've just said, okay, what's written on this hymnal? What do you see written there? Tell me the title that you see on this book. Oh, no, you're wrong. There, there is a title here. Yeah. What title do you see here? If you see it from my perspective, there is a title there. Because truth is not a flat wall. Truth is 3D. And there are many perspectives that are seen to it. A wise person listens to the perspectives, especially when you're doing church business. I think I just stepped out of the camera. Uh, When you're doing church business, you need to listen to the gifted people from the whole group. Uh, Sometimes teachers who like details about things, teachers really love to have detail, they will say, wait a minute, I don't understand what this proposal is. Who's going to do this? When's it going to be done? What's it got to be done by? da 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 and you got administrators going, oh, come on, don't bog us down with that. Let's just pass it, and we'll get on with it. And then the prophets in the, in the group have to say, unless the Lord has said so, we shall not do this. 
So you got those that do that. Then you got those who are mercy people say, I don't think we ought to pass this. If we do this, somebody's going to be hurt. I just know somebody's going to be hurt. We need to not do this tonight. Can we table this till next month? And the teachers are going, hey, man, there's not enough detail here. I, need to, I, I can't vote on this tonight. This has to be tabled till next month. You understand what I'm saying? You, you've got to know there are perspectives that everybody's got to share in. So you, a plurality of leadership helps you see things from many different sides, all right? So it's not just uh, what the pastor says, and that's the way we do things. The pastors are not Moseses. They are men just like everybody else. And they are called on to be able to share the, the plurality of leadership there, okay? So elders that... Um, uh, with reliable truth and a plurality of leadership, they provided orderly structure to the church services and ministries. They would carry on much of the apostolic ministry after the apostolic gifts began to wane. For instance, they were to be the discerners and the teachers of truth. The apostles before, I mean, goodness, you know, when I think about Peter and I think what he did, here is uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and Ananias comes in, he says, um, so, what do you got there, Ananias? Here, I've got this offering here. Okay, Ananias, where did you get that offering? It's what I sold the property for. Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? <laughs> what? What do you mean? How, how, how are you knowing that? You're dead. So Sapphira comes in. Sapphira, did you sell the property to such and such? Yep. So you're going to lie too. Your husband's just been carried out. You're going with him. That's discernment. That's apostolic discernment that looked into things right away. When the apostles are gone, there that that ability was passed on to the elders, but not to anyone as having the apostolic authority. It was passed on to them in a plurality of leadership, so that everybody's testing this thing to see what's really going on with it. Are you, are you seeing where I'm coming from on that? All right. Look at the next thing. Uh, they were to be those, uh, get it just a minute here, those that administered church discipline, and they were to be the agency through which the healing ministry of the apostles continued. When the apostles were gone, the kind of hint, uh, gifted ministry they had where, you know, they would, uh, they'd let, they'd, they'd be in Paul's shadow. They could just be in Paul or Peter's shadow. They would get well from being in the shadow. Or a, a kerchief touched by Paul would, would bring some healing to someone. That, when the apostles were gone, that was gone. But it passed it on because God's still interested in healing. God's not interested in not healing people anymore. That was passed on to the elders, and the elders had special things they were supposed to do, and people had special ways in which they were supposed to call them. That's in James chapter 5. So you had the elders that are in a plurality of leadership. Secondly, it had deacons church servers who would meet the actual needs of the congregation, especially those physical ones. They, they were gifts of hospitality, service, benevolence, and counsel were especially employed and appreciated. So you had deacons who literally met people's needs. It might be that uh, what, um, what Phoebe's going to do in the church is that Phoebe is going to um, be like the drum family to us. When missionaries would come in, the drum family said, we've got plenty of bedrooms, let them come stay with us. Wow, that's hospitality. That is a deacon ministry. Ever, ever see where I'm at? 
um, deacon's closet. Why is it called a deacon's closet? Because there's food in there that's meant to be distributed to people who have a need for it. All right. So deacons were church servers. And then number three, spiritually gifted people were free to use their spiritual gifts in an orderly, faithful, spirit-led manner. Okay? So if a teacher is, is a teacher, you're supposed to teach with all the fullness of the Spirit of God. If you're a prophet, you're supposed to speak prophetically with the, with the Word of God. If you're a server, you're supposed to not sit back and wait for somebody to do something. You jump in there and do it. Frank Cumberland, to me, always was a, a wonderful servant. Uh, he, he was, he'd walk into any Sunday school classroom. He'd look around. He was always looking to see, is there a glass of water there? Because the speaker couldn't eat a glass of water. The teacher couldn't eat a glass of water. Is there adequate erasers there to erase the board with? Are there adequate markers there? Have the trash cans been dumped? Are the chairs clean? Are, where, when people sit down there, are they going to sit down in clean chairs or is there trash on the floor? Frank always did that. And no one ever told him to do it. You follow where, where we're coming from? That's just what he did. Why? He was using his spiritual gift to get things done. All right. Um, the Spirit worked through them to edify the church members and develop new ways to live and give the, good, give the gospel. But, letter B, some churches and pastors could not handle the freedom that such structure provided and took advantage of its simplicity. They preferred a more military style of hierarchy. This was especially true among those who would be bishops or elders. Strong personalities often led to stifled ministry and frustrated spirit-gifted people. So sometimes you had a guy who just really wanted to be the boss. He did not understand what the Scripture said about servant leadership, and he just went in to start bossing people around. At stifled ministry, there were all kinds of people who now said, I don't know if I want to minister in this church or not. I, I think I ought to sit on my spiritual gift for a while. I don't think I want to do anything because I don't, I don't trust what this guy is going to do. All right? Letter C. Other churches permitted what appeared to be gifted women to teach and actually seduce members of the church. You say, they actually did that? Yeah. Look back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 just for a moment, okay? Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Let's just take a look at a couple of those and see if we can't see um, this very thing lived out. Let's pick up on verse 18 of Revelation 2. Revelation two eighteen, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Uh, so he's, he's speaking about that. Um, Let's see, I believe there's an, another one here. Uh, Balaam. Okay. How about Pergamum? 
uh, to Pergamum. He says, uh, I know where you, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, so on and so forth. So on. Oh, here we go. Verse 14 of chapter 2. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So there were some churches that that was going on in. And Jesus has a problem with those churches. He's telling them, if you don't stop this, I'm removing your lamp. You, you won't have any witness anymore, okay? So sometimes the free structure of the church permitted false teachers to beguile the members into eating forbidden foods or to sell their faith out to the culture like Balaam had done for Balak and Israel. Letter E, as in all human endeavors involving groups, power struggles, financial corruption, moral defilement, and political manipulation turned the church into wicked centers of deceit. That happened in some of the churches. That's sad, but it happened in some of the churches. Um, Those churches were not permitted to keep on functioning and keep on bringing wrong wrong truth or wrong uh, information into the world, okay? Then when churches left the biblical values and absorbed the culture's values, they turned their spiritual centers into weapons of the enemy without even realizing it. It took on a pharisaical demeanor wrapped in its self-righteousness, okay? And here I, I want to give you um, I think when I, when I ran across this, it bothered me greatly. It, it really troubled my faith. I did not know to the extent which the church was involved with the things that were done to Native Americans. Uh, when I discovered that the church was actually responsible for taking Native American children out of their parents' homes, taking them miles from those homes, cutting their hair, uh, taking, making their clothes. Uh, they couldn't keep the traditional clothes anymore. They forbid them to speak their own native language and beat them. It, it, it was shocking. I, I just thought, how could you ever have thought that's a right thing to do? How could you think of yourself as a church and think that's the right thing to do? And I kid you not, it was a dilemma for me and my faith because I I thought church had a pretty good past. So that caused me to start looking at other things, and that's what I came to realize. When the church gives up its biblical values and starts turning to the values of the culture, the values of the culture at the time of that Native American said this, the best Native American is a dead Native American. And then he started saying, okay, we don't want to go around killing all the the Native Americans, so let's just do this. Let's uh, kill the Indian and save the man. Well, I kind of understand that if it's coming from a secular world, that's a a no-life viewpoint. But when the church says that, okay, now I have a problem. Am I making sense to you? When the church surrenders its biblical values to pick up on the values of the culture, it will do wrong things. There's just not a way. I I, I do the same thing when something that calls itself a church approves of and is looking forward to homosexual behavior. 
that's not making sense to me. That's not making sense. Okay? Or when a church approves of and really is asking for more abortions to be done. That's not making sense to me. It's not, it's not doing it. That's not the church's position in the past. The church's position was usually to provide homes for people to stay till they had their children, and then if they didn't want to keep their children, they adopted the children out. Was it always done properly? Probably not. Were there ever abuses? I'm sure there probably were. But my point is, that's not what the church was about. That's when I realized that a church cannot afford to sacrifice biblical values for the values of the culture. That's one of the reasons I don't want us to be grossly involved in political thought. It's, it's proper for us to think political things, but for us to endorse candidates, not, not wise, that can often force us into uh, endorsing things that are wrong morally, that are wrong biblically, and I don't think we want to be there. And you're, you're free to disagree with me on that. I don't, I'm not, that's, it's not a requirement. I just feel like when the church loses its biblical values and replaces it with the culture's values, they've lost. They're, they're not a church anymore, okay? Then, letter, uh, matter of fact, the, the churches that did those things I was explaining, they wrapped themselves in self-righteousness, saying they were actually saving the children's lives. Well, Canada did a study 10 years ago, 20, 20 years ago, called the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Council, I think it was. And what they did, they went all over Canada asking Native American people if they'd had any experience with um, boarding schools. A lot of people had had experience with boarding schools, and it was not positive. So Canada made a whole new policy of saying, okay, we're, we're changing a whole lot of things here. We owe you some serious apologies. We owe you some serious reconciliations. Some things were done wrong there, right? Um, now, probably the church, big, church's biggest mistake was in abandoning its true God-given, spirit-driven birthright and sold it for a mess of pottage. If you, if you think that sounds like Esau, that's what I meant it to sound like. Right? Uh, sold it for a mess of pottage to become the tool of the state and merchants. This is the church's Babylon adultery. Compare it with Revelation 17. When I, when I say the church uh, was introduced to Rome and found Babylon instead, the church becoming a state vessel, a state tool, is the Babylonian adultery. Uh, Look with me at at Revelation 17 for just a moment. Revelation 17. This this will tell you what I'm meaning when I say that that's a Babylonian experience. 17.1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. On her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now notice, one of the things she does, she takes advantage of people, and she hates the saints. Now, I, I, I hate to say that much of the European history is of religious people killing other religious people in big numbers. Even when you look at the reformers, uh, John Calvin Great reformer, writes, writes great books, all that good stuff. John Calvin so hated the Anabaptists that he was uh, approving of the drowning of Anabaptists as their third baptism. Anabaptist means to be baptized again. Why? Because John Calvin didn't change the pedo-baptism. In other words, they were still baptizing children as a way of showing those children are in the covenant of the church. So they still baptize children. Many people who grew up as a baptized child realized later when they actually trusted Christ that they had never uh, been baptized as a believing person. So they're reading the Bible and it looks like it says that believers were baptized. Believers were baptized. So two of them baptized each other. And when they baptized each other, the church found out about it and blew a gasket. They were angry with them. So they started calling those people who were baptized again, Anabaptists, because Anna means again. That's not what they called themselves. They simply said, no, we're not baptized again because you never were baptized in the first place. Pedo-baptism is not baptism. Only believer baptism is baptism. So at least they count themselves baptized once. So the solution they had was they took all those people or they took a number of those people who had been baptized as a believer, tied them and bound them, threw them in the river so they couldn't swim and called that their baptism. That's done by believers on other believers. That's nuts. That's Babylonian. Do you see why I call it Babylonian? They're drunk on the blood of the saints. Roman Catholic Church slaughtered 10,000 in a single day. It was not unusual to see churches doing that. Um, Luther had a horrible hatred for Jewish people and did a lot of unkind things to some people. He didn't like the Anabaptists either. That's all the Reformation period. You, you follow where I'm coming from? Sometimes what I'm trying to tell you is that church history hasn't always been a positive thing to see. It's done some things that have not been right. So one of the reasons we wanted to do this study is to make sure Edgemont Bible Church thinks its way through before when times get tight, we start to do things that would be wrong things. We cannot afford to give up biblical values for the culture's values. We cannot afford to become tools of the state or tools of any political faction. Am I making sense to you? 
We can't afford that. You wind up going Babylonian real quickly on that. All right. So thoughts or comments about what uh, what I'm saying here? Yes. <laughs> yes, I sure do. Yes, and and I think there's nothing like a good dose of church history to do that for you. I, I I know that there are a lot of people we want to count as heroes, and there are people I could say who've done some heroic things, different parts of their lives, but there's some things that were done that were just wrong. And there's not a way to baptize those into right. They were wrong. And we need to be able to say, that was wrong, and we repent. Yep. Thank you, Wayne. I appreciate that. Wayne's just saying, for those of you on Facebook, or if we're still alive in there, Wayne is just saying we need to have great caution about who among us mortals we're calling good people when uh, anybody could make him a, a pretty tragic mistake. All right, anybody have anything else? Um, yes? Let's also learn from church history that we don't fall in that same trap. You know, we can too uh, be guilty of wrong. Yes, and that's why we're doing this study. We don't know what the traps are. I don't want to get trapped in them. I don't want to get caught in that stuff. I want to make sure that we're avoiding those kind of traps. All right.